The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you in prayer, knowing that you uh, seek and desire for us to bring our request before you. Father, we continue to pray for this church, for our forward momentum. We thank you for all that you have provided for us in this new facility, and we pray that all the last-minute details will be, get, will be taken care of. Father, we continue to pray for our forward momentum as a congregation of believers, that we will put our priority on the teaching of the Word, learning it so that we can apply it in our lives and have the courage to go forward in our Christian life. We pray that as we study this chapter in Genesis, that we would be challenged with a greater understanding of the faith rest drill. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. This is Abraham's final exam. There are no more tests given or outlined in Genesis 22 between this event... And Abraham's death, although there are some additional things that take place. Now, coincidentally, in the plan of God, where chance often rules, I'm being facetious. We studied the faith rest drill on Sunday night. And we looked at basics on the faith rest drill. We looked at the fact that the faith rest drill involves three steps. And the first step is that we focus our thinking on a promise of God... We focus our thinking on some principle that we know or just some, some fragment of a passage that we remember and that begins to stabilize our emotions in the midst of some kind of adversity, some situation, circumstance, uh, adversity from people, whatever it may be. We focus on the Word of God or a principle from the Word of God as a start, starting point. Then we think through that. We repeat it over and over, not like a mantra, 
but in order to just focus our thinking. Remember, the Christian life is based on thinking, not emotion. So we focus our thinking. Then you begin to think through that promise or the principle in terms of the rationale behind it, the reasoning that is presented within the promise, if there's a promise, or the reasoning that lies behind the principle, if it's a principle. The other night we focused more on, well, a little bit of both a promise and a principle. We do the same thing in this episode tonight. The episode we focused on as our example of the faith rest drill on Sunday night was David and Goliath. The other great example of the Old Testament related to the faith rest drill is in our chapter tonight in Genesis 22. So you start with the principle, a promise, a procedure, and you focus on that. Then you think it through in terms of that rationale. Then we come to a conclusion. Now that conclusion is not just some sort of academic, academically derived uh, statement that sort of floats out there in our mind, but it's a conclusion that has reality in our life. We conclude firmly that this is my reality. Remember when that, that our ultimate definition of faith is that when the Word of God, a promise of God, a principle of doctrine is more real to us than our emotions, our fears, our worries, our anxieties, the negative circumstances that we face, whatever it may be, when the Word of God is more real to us than our experience, then we're walking by means of faith. And we see a great example of that tonight in this situation with Abraham. And so last time we started off with just the broad overview related to the concept of testing because that's what sets us up in verse 1. And in verse 1 we read, Now it came to pass after these things, that is, after the birth of the promised seed. So Genesis 22.1 tells us that we must understand the events of Genesis 22 in light of the context that has preceded it. And the context that's preceded it, that has structured all of the Abrahamic narrative, is the Abrahamic covenant. It was fun last week. Sconey came in and sat in on the back of my class that I'm teaching at the College of Biblical Studies. And I keep trying to drill into them the same thing I'm trying to drill into you. And that is that from Genesis 12... From Genesis 12 all the way through the end of the Bible to Revelation 22, everything is structured on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. And to understand the Abrahamic covenant is to help us put structure to what God is doing with Israel in the Old Testament, why He shifts away from Israel because of their rejection of Christ, what He is doing in the church age, Today, because we are of the seed of Abraham by faith, how that relates to the third paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant, that it is through Abraham that all nations will be blessed, and then how the Abrahamic covenant sets the stage for what happens in the tribulation as Israel is being brought back into that land that God promised the seed of Abraham, and then their regeneration 
at the national atonement at the end of the tribulation, and then they move into the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. So to understand the Abrahamic covenant, you always think of three things, and those three things are land, seed, and blessing. And just drill it into Scone got it right last week. I was so proud of him. Came to class, and but they haven't gotten it yet. They're still working on it, but we've only had five classes. So land, seed, and blessing. And this test, and every test in Abraham's life relates to one of those three elements. And this test in chapter 22 specifically relates to the seed. The seed is born in chapter 21. So that after these things tells us after God has fulfilled His promise, the promise that was specified in chapter 17 that it would be a son, that that son would come through Sarah, and that seed is born in chapter uh, 21. Isaac is born, and some time has gone by. Isaac is now an adult. He's called a na'ar, a young man. Uh, na'ar in the Hebrew in this passage. And that can be anything from puberty to uh, 30 or 40. Interestingly, in reading the rabbis, I noted that they think that he was 37. How they arrived at that, I haven't dis- uh, discovered. But they clearly make... Isaac older, and I believe he was older. I don't believe he was uh, a a boy any more than I believe David was a boy. I think that he was at least 15 or 16, conceivably older in his 20s or his 30s. So God appears to Abraham after these things, and he's going to test Abraham. And we saw that the word for test in the Hebrew is the word nasa, that's not nasa, that's nasa, and it means to test or to try the sense of proving, putting something to into the pressure cooker in order to demonstrate what's there. Uh, in that sense, it means to assay or value something. It's a, it has a positive connotation. Uh, we think of tempting, which is one of the ways it's translated. We think of tempting only in the sense of enticing to sin, enticing to evil, and that's not how the, either the Old Testament or New Testament words are used. The Old Testament and New Testament words emphasize the idea of test more than they do that idea of enticing to evil, even though that concept is present in a few, uh, few passages and a few places where it's used. Etymologically, the uh, verb nasa derives from a noun, nis which indicates a signal pole or a standard or a banner. And the point that's made there is that a test is designed to reveal something. And in the plan of God, what he is doing is revealing the truth of his word as it plays itself out in the lives of creatures that are willing to be dependent upon him. It's a concept that ties directly into our role in the angelic conflict to be witnesses both to man and to angels. So when we're passing those tests, we're facing those crisis situations where we have the opportunity to take the promises of God, put them into application, and grow. It's as it were creating a banner over our life that is read by other people. And it's amazing how many times unbelievers are watching us. And I have this is told to me many times by different people, different circumstances, where they're deeply involved in witnessing to somebody 
uh, maybe over a period of years, it's an unbeliever and says, you know, they really watch us. They observe us. Unbelievers want to know if we're really consistent to really understand and see how Christians put things into practice. Is it just something that is superficial or is this something that, that, that really does change their life, change the way they respond to things, or are they basically reacting to everything like, like an unbeliever does? So we have a testimony to, to unbelievers and we have a testimony to angels. Furthermore, what the test does is it advances us in our spiritual growth. It's an evaluation of what we have learned from doctrine. And that's what we see with Abraham. There's a tremendous advance in Abraham's spiritual growth by chapter 22. So God says to him, Abraham calls to him, and Abraham says, Here I am. And this is the Hebrew word hineni, which simply means, Behold me. I'm here. I'm ready. And then God gives a command in verse 2. And this is sort of scene 1. There's about six different breakdowns of this in this chapter as the drama unfolds. One of the most dramatic events in all of the Bible. And in this first scene, God says, Take now your son. Now that's a little bit of a interpretation there into the English. The word that is translated now in the English is the word in Hebrew, na, and it indicates almost an entreaty. It's a, it's a polite request. So it's not the sense of take now, which implies a, a harsher mandate. And it, it suggests that God recognizes the difficulty of this request for Abraham. It's, in, in our idiom, we would say, God said, please take your son. He's being very polite. He's saying, please take your son. And then you notice the way he describes Isaac. He says, please take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Three ways he describes him. Your son, the only son. Now we know, well, what about Ishmael? Well, Ishmael has gone. Ishmael has been, as it were, disinherited when Hagar was told to leave. And Isaac is the son, the unique son, the one-of-a-kind son born through the sexually dead father and sexually dead mother. It is your unique son. Uh, some passages, some versions of the, of the Septuagint translated this with the uh, word monogenes, which is the same word that is used to refer to the only begotten Son of God in John 3.16. It literally means one of a kind. It's not unique. It's the word monogenes was also used in the Septuagint to, to refer to the daughter of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, the daughter of Jephthah who Jephthah ended up sacrificing as a burnt offering. There's a parallel between Judges 11 and Genesis uh, 22. Some of the same vocabulary is used, and there is a uh, the, the Holy Spirit is presenting somewhat of a contrast bet- between Abraham and the test here versus the fact that Jephthah 
though he is a chosen judge and though God the Holy Spirit has empowered him militarily to defeat the enemies of Israel, he is still utilizing human viewpoint techniques, bargaining with God, and, and he says, God, if you give me victory, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of my door to greet me when I come home. And the word there for sacrifice is the same word we find in this passage, and that's the word ola, which means a burnt offering. And in that case, the writer of Judges says, And when he returned, the daughter came running out of the house to greet him, and he did to her as he had vowed. Now, squeamish little uh, evangelicals who just can't stomach the fact that somebody's mentioned in Hebrew, Hebrews 11 would actually offer their daughter as a, as a, as a burnt offering and human sacrifice, try to make it uh, something like dedicating her to uh, Yahweh, to service in the temple, etc. There's no indication of that practice. It violates the verbiage in the, in the statement and it denies the argument of the book of Judges. So it's a really pathetic view because uh, evangelicals just can't come to grips with leaders who fail miserably because they operate on their sin nature and on pagan viewpoint. And, of course, that's, that's the theme of Judges. But the, and so there's that contrast here, but we'll, we'll refer back to that in just a minute. So God says to Isaac, Take now your son... Your only son, the monogenes, it's your unique, not unique, it's your one-of-a-kind son or only in the sense of an only child. So it's a one-of-a-kind because of his birth. Uh, Jephthah's daughter is an only child. The son of God in John 3.16 is a a one-of-a-kind son. So this should be understood as that only one-of-a-kind Isaac. Take now your son, your only one-of-a-kind Isaac, whom you love. Emphasis on the fact that you love Isaac. Now, this immediately puts Abraham between the horns of a dilemma. I have to love God. Loving God means to obey God. Loving God doesn't mean to feel good about God, to have warm fuzzies about God, to to have a little emotional uplift because we've been singing praise and worship choruses together on Sunday morning for 45 minutes and all our endorphins are up and we just feel good about everybody. And uh, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about or what the Bible talks about for love for God is always connected to obedience. And obedience implies knowledge of mandates. Knowledge of mandates comes from studying the Word. So you can't love God if you don't know the Word of God and you can't know the Word of God if you don't take the time to study, concentrate, and be taught the Word so that it fills your thinking and shapes your thinking. That's the only way you can love God. And so Abraham is put between the horns of a dilemma here because he has to to love God. He has to obey God's command on the one hand, but on the other hand, he loves his son. This is the son he's been looking forward to for for many years before finally Sarah became pregnant and she gave birth to the promised seed. And now some 15, 20, 30 years has gone by and he's built a relationship with his son and he loves his son. And the last thing he wants to do is see anything harmful come to his son. But on the other hand, he has to obey God. So he's got to decide what comes first. And I'm reminded 
of what Job says. I don't know the verse off the top of my head, but he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is the ultimate statement of the faith rest drill. No matter what it costs me personally, I am going to trust God and do what his word says, even if it's painful, even if it if it threatens my life, even if it's the last thing in the world I want to do. And this is where you see most Christians fail in spiritual growth, is that at some point, the reality of what the Word of God is teaching in terms of your cherished life, how you try to handle the problems in your life and deal with people around you and relationships, is going to come uh, head-to-head in a confrontation with what the Word of God says. And it often happens in the context of relationships. I frequently see it, especially in marital breakdown, because the one thing that point that pops up the most in marital breakdown is you, all of a sudden you really see two sin natures uh, just grating on each other. And at that point you have to you have to say, okay, now that we've really exposed the nastiness of your sin natures, are you willing to let the Word of God change it? And what I find 90% of the time is one or both run and hide for the like scurry for the darkness like a bunch of cockroaches because few of us have the real spiritual courage to face the nastiness of our own sin natures and our own desire to live independently from God and really trust God to do change in our souls and to change that sin nature. And that's where real spiritual growth takes place. And we've seen this with Abraham, because if you remember how grasping Abraham was and controlling that he was in the early stages of his life, every time there's a there was a test, uh, there's a famine in the land. Well, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to Egypt. He's coming up with ways to handle the situation so he doesn't go through personal discomfort. And now he's at a point of test where there's tremendous, or at least the possibility of tremendous discomfort then I can't imagine anything that would bring more personal misery to a parent than having to reach down and slit the throat of a child, of their son, their daughter, and then carve them up into the various pieces that are required in a burnt offering, and then place them on the altar and then to burn them as a burnt offering. This is not a simple little thing. And yet Abraham seems to approach this without a lot of second thought. That shows how much he has changed. See, the Word of God is going to change your personality because a lot of our personalities are impacted by our sin nature. Sometimes I wonder if we're even going to recognize each other when we get to heaven, because without that sin nature, some of us are going to have really different personalities. And we just won't know quite what to make of what we are without that sin nature. So God comes to Abraham and says, This is the son whom you love. This is who you're attached to. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah. And the command there is... In the Hebrew, it's velek leka. The v at the beginning is really the conjunction and. It's lek leka, and it's the same verbiage, the same phrase that you have in 12.1. That is a command. You 
go yourself. And in 12.1, there's an expansion. You go yourself. Don't take your family with you. Leave your family behind. Leave everyone behind. Here, you don't have that stipulation. But since it's the same verbiage that you have in 12.1, the implication is there that you go alone. Just you and Isaac. You don't go with your family. And so there's a, there's a hint of that here. And remember when God first told Abraham to leave Lech Lecha, to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and he went to Haran, he took his daddy with him, and he took his nephew with him. He didn't go alone. He, he partially obeyed the command. So here there's that contrast that he is fully, uh, fully following the command. And he is told to uh, go to Moriah. We'll come back and look at that in a second. And to offer him as a burnt offering. This is the word Olah. And Olah derives from the verb Allah. Allah means to go up, to climb a mountain, to ascend. And so it speaks of the ascending smoke that comes off of the offering. The description of a burnt offering is given in Leviticus chapter 1. And in Leviticus chapter 1, there were three different kinds of burnt offerings. You could bring a bull from the herd, or you could bring a ram, or you could bring uh, two birds. And the, uh, the, the, the ram or the bull, of course, had to be from the herd or from the flocks, had to be male. And you would, it had to be without spot or blemish. And you would bring the offering. You would tie it up. You would cut the throat, you would then butcher it, burn everything. It's a picture that you are giving everything to God. It's a picture of the sufficiency of atonement, that everything goes up in the sacrifice, and it's a pretty bloody mess. And so this and this word is never used of anything else in the Scripture. This is what appalled me back when I was in in seminary, I wrote my master's thesis on the Jephthah vow, and you just have all these people say, well, it may use the word Ola here, but he couldn't really do that. Yes, he could. That's what the word says. You can't just, because you don't like the meaning of the word, you can't just come in and try to make it mean something else. It always has this uh, meaning of a burnt offering, and six times in this passage, this word is repeated to emphasize for us that this is what God expected Abraham to do. And the thrust of a burnt offering was that the offering functioned as an atoning sacrifice, a substitute for the individual who is presenting uh, the sacrifice. Now, when we come to this passage, another thing that we should just note as we go past it is that liberals always come along and try to use this to show that the Bible has an evolutionary view of God. See, the God, this early view of God in Genesis is a cruel God. He's a God who wants human sacrifice. He's a God who is, is not the kind, loving God of the New Testament. So you see this evolution, evolutionary idea in the theology of Israel. Well, that's just because presuppositionally they've refused to pay attention to the context of the whole event. They don't look at it in its context in Abraham's life. They ignore the first verse, which says this is a test. And they 
ignore what God is doing between Genesis 12 and Genesis 24. So, the answer to, to the liberal is that this is a test. God never was going to allow Abraham to, to sacrifice Isaac. The point was, is he willing to trust God with the promised seed and do whatever God asks him to do? So he's going, he's, God orders him to go to Moriah and to sacrifice there. Now there's a number of places that we know that human sacrifice is prohibited in the scripture. For example, in Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 18.21 and Leviticus 20, verses 2 through 5, prohibit human sacrifice. But there were examples of human sacrifice in Israel in the Old Testament as they were influenced by paganism. For example, in the worship of Moloch. Moloch was a Canaanite deity that was worshipped through child sacrifice in the way you would propitiate or placate Moloch. And archaeology has discovered some of these. He has his arms out in front of him, and there's this fiery furnace there, and you would take an infant and put him on the arms of Moloch, and the infant would be immolated in the flames. And this is prohibited in uh, the Leviticus passages. It's referenced also in 2 Kings 3.27 and 2 Kings 17.17. So there are indications of, of, of human sacrifice among uh, paganism, and that's not what's going on here. Another element to this is that in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, the firstborn son was dedicated to God. Now, in paganism, the firstborn son in some of the pagan religions would be offered to God as a sacrifice. But in under the Mosaic Law, the firstborn son was dedicated to God, but is redeemed with an animal uh, offering. For example, in Exodus 34:20, we read, "But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck." So that indicates the sacrifice of the death of the firstborn, which would go to God. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none of you shall appear before me empty-handed. In other words, you're going to redeem the firstborn. You're not going to sacrifice him, which was the pagan practice. Now, I had another slide here that I'm looking for. Here it is. Got it out of order. When, we talk, when the command talks about going to the mountains of Moriah, there's an interesting play on words here. In the Hebrew, I just love to point these things out because you miss them in translation. But when we find the word the mountains of Moriah, the word in the Hebrew for mountains is ha-harim. The word for mountain is har the definite article is that initial ha, and the im ending is the plural, ha-harim. So I've just transliterated that for you in the slide with the consonants, because that's all you had in the original Hebrew. H-H-R-Y-M. But Mariah is, sp- is spelled ha-mariah. The initial ha is the article. Mariah, M-R-Y-H. So you have H-M-R-Y-H, and and since you can see it on the screen, you see that the two words are made up of the same letters. That's called an anagram. And an anagram takes place when you have uh, the letters of one word making up the letters of another word. Now, when 
They're the same letters, or the word is the same spell forward or backwards. That's called a palindrome. What's interesting here is that you have another case of, a, of an anagram in the Latin Vulgate. I just thought I'd add this so some of you who teach English or Latin have something uh, that you can use for an illustration. In the Latin of, of the Gospel of John, when Pilate asked what is truth, and we've all gone through this recently, in the Latin it's quid est veritas. That's an anagram. If you turn the words, to use the same letters, you can come up with the answer est vir, qui adest, which means it is the man who is here. I just thought that was interesting. When Pilate says, says what is truth in the Latin, if you rearrange the letters, it means it's the man who's here. So the Bible is full of these fun little... Uh, the Holy Spirit is not one-dimensional as he sets up the Word of God. He uses a lot of puns, and there's a lot of puns and word plays in the Old Testament. Okay, so much for levity. Let's get back to our story. So Abraham comes along, and um, he responds to the test very simply in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now, we would think that there would be some indication of Abraham's mental attitude. What's his emotional state? Think about what your emotional state would be here. God's telling you to go kill your kid. Hebrews tells us what's going on in his thinking. He's thinking doctrine. This shows the tremendous maturity, the advance that's taken place in Abraham's life. Hebrews 11:17 clues us in. If all we had was Genesis 22, we wouldn't know this. But if we go to the New Testament, we read that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten monogenes. Son, son's not really there, just as he offered up his monogonase, of whom it was said, I am in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Verse 19, concluding, here's the faith rest drill here. He reaches a doctrinal conclusion, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Why, why, what does that mean? Well, he received him in a figurative sense because he was... He was sexually dead when all of this began. So he received him in a figurative sense because he was unable to have a son. And God miraculously changed his body and Sarah's body so that he could. But he reaches a conclusion. So what's the process? Because we have to follow that same process. He knows a promise or a principle. He's got two, both of those functioning for him. What's the promise that he knows? The promise is the Abrahamic covenant. He knows that God has promised him a seed, that he's going to have descendants that are as innumerable as the stars of the sky and the sands of the, of the sea. So he knows that he's going to have all these descendants. Well, they're only going to come through Isaac. So he finally has learned that God has promised this and God's not going to go back on it. What is that? That's a principle related to the character of God, to his essence. He knows now that God is faithful. He's been observing God through the last uh, 40 or 50 years of his life, and he now understands the omnipotence 
of God. God's the one who gave him the victory over the Keterleomer alliance back in chapter uh, 14. God is the one who has regenerated his body and Sarah's body. He's seen enough evidence now to where through the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and the principles he's learned related to the character and the essence of God, he has thought through the rationale. He says, you know, if God promised this, and if God's able to regenerate my body and Sarah's body, then reaching a conclusion, it's not impossible for him to raise somebody from the dead. So if he can raise somebody from the dead and he can't break his promise, that means that if I really go through with this and kill Isaac, then God's going to bring him back to life. And so he reaches this conclusion, and it's so certain in his thinking, because the promise of God and the character of God is now more real to him than what he is experiencing that he relaxes in terms of his own emotion because emotion is always the consequence of what you're believing in your soul. So next time you're getting whacked out emotionally, just think about what that says about what you're believing at that moment about the situation, which, how you're evaluating and interpreting the things going on around you. So he relaxes completely knowing that God is going to be true to his promise and since Isaac has not fathered anyone yet. God obviously is going to raise him from from the dead. So we go to verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the what? The burnt offering. The Holy Spirit keeps reminding us this is where we're headed. He splits the wood, wood for the burnt offering. Last time I pointed out that uh, your liberals will argue that, well, Mount Moriah couldn't, of course, be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem because there was wood there, and they're thinking about 1,000 B.C., and this is 2,000 B.C. There may not have been wood there, but it also could be that Abraham is just a man who wants to be prepared. He's got a three-day journey to, to the mountains of Moriah, three-day journey to the area around Jerusalem. He may not know what's available for him in terms of firewood, so he is going to be fully and completely prepared to carry out the mission. So he loads up, his, gets his transportation ready, you know, checks the oil, puts enough gas in the gas tank, and checks the tires. And then he heads out, trusting God to fulfill the situation. On the third day... So he's traveling a while. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, and he sees the mountains afar off. But he's remembering that the implication of the command to go yourself means just him and Isaac. So he is going to tell the servants to stay behind. So Abraham, in verse 5, said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And this is one of the first instances in the Scripture where we have the word worship. And it's from the Hebrew verb shachah, which means to bow down. That's the essence of worship. It is in an extremely unusual uh, form in the Hebrew. In fact, this is the only time it, it occurs in the Old Testament. It's the hishtafel, imperfect, first person plural. We will worship. And the concept of worship means to prostrate oneself. To worship, it means to demonstrate your obedience and your allegiance to the authority of the one you're obeying. 
But notice it's a first-person plural. Now, for those of you who haven't studied language in a while, first-person singular is I, second-person singular is you, third-person singular is he, she, or it. First-person plural is we. We. He says, we will worship, and then he says, we, first-person plural again, we will return to you. Now, what does that tell you about Abraham's confidence? He says, he doesn't say, we're going to worship and I'm going to come back by myself. He says, we will come back. So he is convinced in his mind that they're going to go up there and worship and come back. He may end up killing Isaac in the process, but God will bring him back to life. So he's convinced, and just the verbiage he used indicates that. So he is completely obedient to God, and that's the essence of worship. Worship can exhibit itself in different ways. One way in which we worship is through singing praises to God. That is a legitimate form of worship established in the Old Testament, carried through in the New Testament. In fact, in Ephesians 5:19 and following, and Colossians 3:16 and following, singing hymns is part of the filling of the Holy Spirit and is a consequence of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Singing is not just something Christians started doing and it's tacked on to Bible class. It is a part of worship. That's why God gave us a hymn book in the middle of the Scripture called the Psalms. And the Psalms is a divinely inspired hymn book of Israel in the Old Testament. And so they sang praise to God. When we get to heaven, we're going to do a lot of singing. And fortunately, we'll all have good voices by the time that happens. So we'll be in our, in our resurrection bodies. Verse 6. So Abram took the wood of the burnt offering. Once again, we have the repetition of the word burnt offering. And laid it on Isaac, his son. Not only does he get to be the, get to be the sacrifice, he gets to take the place of the donkey. He gets to carry the wood up there. And he took the fire in his hand. So apparently he had some sort of spark or embers that he carried to enable him to uh, get the fire going once he got up there. He's completely prepared uh, for, for the burnt offering. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father in verse 7. But I, and said, My father, and Abraham said, Here I am, my son. This is a second use of Hineni. Behold me. Then he, that is Isaac, said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now this is one of those passages where there's a certain amount of ambiguity. Is Isaac being... Very naive here. Very innocent, saying, "Hey, Pop, you know we don't have anything for the for the sacrifice. What are we going to do?" Or is he a little more knowledgeable here, catching the implication that he's going to be the sacrifice, but willing to trust his father in the process? And commentators are split, and the reality is the verbiage here can imply both. What lies behind the either of those interpretations is the idea that you have an obedient son that he is, like any burnt offering, he is without spot or blemish. He is presented as a valued sacrifice. So it all fits the imagery here of the burnt offering. Verse 8, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Notice the confidence from his, the conclusion he draws from the operation of the faith rest drill. So the two of them go up together. And again, we have this reiteration of the verbiage burnt offering. 
And verse 9, Then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son. Now, think about the men. I've often wondered about this. What's Isaac thinking at this point? I mean, we know what Abraham's thinking because he knows of whatever happens. Does he communicate that to Isaac? Does he say, look, Isaac, God promised you, you're the promised seed. How many times do you think Isaac has been told he's the unique promised seed? How many times do you think Isaac has heard the story? So is he talking to Isaac and saying, now, look, I'm convinced he's going to bring you back to life. You need to be convinced also. How mature is Isaac? Isaac is never one in the Scriptures that's presented as one with a lot of... uh, Problems. In fact, when we, when we get into the story of Isaac in a few chapters, Isaac just seems as a transition to Jacob. Jacob, we know, has all kinds of problems. But Isaac is just this transition as, as he carries on the seed and the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. So the, it, it could very well be that Isaac is, is, is saying, Sure, Dad, I trust you. I trust God. Let's, let's get on with it. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, binds Isaac, lays him on the altar, and gets ready to take his life. Stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, and then suddenly the angel of the Lord, this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, two times. It was only one time earlier, but he gets his attention. Abraham, Abraham, and again, Abraham says for the third time in the passage, Hineni. See, these are little markers that the Holy Spirit puts in there to get our attention. He is ready. He is ready and obedient in all of these places. Verse 12, And he said, Don't, that is the angel of the Lord, don't lay your hand on the lad. Stops him just in the act so that it's clear Abraham has complete trust in performing God's command. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. What is it that the psalmist says? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It is this recognition that God is right no matter what. That God is the one who has the right to tell me what to think, how to think, how to act, because He alone is completely trustworthy. And no matter what it might cost me in my day-to-day life or in my day-to-day thinking, no matter how personally challenging or threatening or vulnerable it may make me, the issue is to trust Him. That's the starting point for maturity, the starting point for wisdom. So he says, now I know that you fear God. You have reached spiritual maturity since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then we come from verse 13, and Abraham lifted his eyes immediately, and he looks, and there in the thicket is a what? A ram caught by its horns. Now, a burnt offering, when we get into, it hasn't been defined yet, but when we get into the Mosaic Law, later on, the burnt offering is either going to be a bull or a ram or birds, a couple of birds, if you're uh, impoverished and can't afford a ram or 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 a bull. So Abraham lifts his eyes. There's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. The perfect picture of substitutionary atonement. The burnt offering is the offering in the Levitical offerings that pictures atonement. The substitution here of the ram for Isaac is the picture of what Jesus Christ does for us. He dies in our place. 
so that we don't have to die. Jesus Christ dies as that atoning sacrifice that is a pleasing sacrifice to God and a sufficient sacrifice is pictured in the fact that in a burnt offering everything goes up to God. It is a complete sacrifice. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh Yireh. Or, or, it's not Jehovah Jireh. You'll often, that's the old King James. Always remember, God is not Jehovah. Jehovah is a made-up name. Jehovah is comprised of the four letters of the sacred tetragrammaton of J-H-V-H, which are the four consonants. The vowels came from the Hebrew word Adonai. And the Jews would never read the name of God. In fact, in Jewish commentaries, they, when, it's, when it's used, they put in the name Hashem. Uh, but they would read Adonai, meaning the generic word for Lord, instead of, of uh, Yahweh. And so what they did was they, later on, the Masoretes added the vowel points from Adonai to the consonants of Yahweh to remind the reader to read Adonai when he saw those four letters. Later on, uh, when people transliterated it or brought it over into English, they took those consonants J-H-V-H and interposed the vowels from Adonai, which gives you Jehovah. But there's, Jehovah is not a biblical word. So you can remind, when next time they knock on your door, you can remind the, the cultists uh, that Jehovah is not even in the Bible. And so... Wayne House always makes a big issue of this, I understand, in his classrooms up at Oregon Seminary. Uh, and and, and every, time, every now and then some student prays in the name of Jehovah. And Wayne just interrupts and says, Who's Jehovah? We don't worship Him. He gets the point across. So he names the place, that is Moriah, the Lord will provide, because this is the picture of the sufficiency of God's grace. He provides everything that we need. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now what's interesting, and unfortunately we just don't have enough data, but Golgotha isn't far from the temple mount. And we have that plural phrase, mountains of Moriah. Now, according to Second Chronicles 3.1, the temple is built on the site where this took place. But it's in those same mountains, that same region, because Golgotha is just outside the city of Jerusalem where our Lord Jesus Christ was sacrificed. So that whole picture there is this is the place that God provides the substitutionary sacrifice for mankind. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies. Now what is this? The Abrahamic covenant reiterated again. Not, it's not being given now. It is just a reaffirmation to Abraham that God is going to fulfill that which he has promised. Verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
So Abraham returned to his young men, in verse 19, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So Abraham passes his final exam, and because he passes his final exam, he uh, isn't tested anymore. As far as we're revealing Scripture, that doesn't mean he didn't have problems living in a fallen world. But what we see in conclusion is that as Abraham passes the test, he realizes that the promise, first of all, that the promise of God was more real than his circumstances. The promise of God was more real to him than his circumstances. Second, he learned that the character of God was more real than his circumstances. Third, he learned to trust the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise. He didn't step into this. We go back to Genesis 12. It's partial obedience. Then there's disobedience. Then there's obedience. Then there's disobedience. And we see that he grew this just the same way that you and I do as he goes down that, pro- that, that process. But eventually he learned to trust that God was faithful and would fulfill his promise so he could relax in the midst of the circumstances. Fourth, Abraham learned to trust the character and the power of God. So he's moved beyond the promises to understand God's character and his power. And then fifth, he was able to put together the promise of God, the covenant, with the character of God and the power of God and knew that God would not allow him to sacrifice Isaac. That's when we're really moving and cranking on the, on the faith rest drill. It's when God's word and power is more real to us than anything that we are experiencing. Next time we'll come to some wrap-up in Abraham's life and the, next, and the next transition, which is to Isaac, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this tremendous example that we have from the Scriptures in Isaac, the sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement, but above all, the trust that Abraham had in you. He understood the promise. He understood what you provided for us, and he relaxed and rested upon that promise. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this, have the courage to evaluate and apply this to our own life, our own thinking, that we may have that banner of a testimony to those around us, and to the angels. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.